Welcome to season six of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope for your marriage and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm a military spouse, clinician, and advocate. And I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast. This season, we're talking about what it means to be strong in body, mind, and spirit. And I'm giving you the challenge of rising above your circumstances to become the best version of you. So grab a cup of coffee or head out for that run. We have a lot to talk about. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. This is part of a um, special bonus spontaneous series on um, the withdrawal of Afghanistan and how that's impacting um, our entire community. And um, and I wanted to do a video series to go along with the audio. So um, you might be listening to this on the podcast, or um, but if you are listening on the podcast, know that there's video that you can watch this instead or vice versa. But I thought it was really important if we were going to talk um, about our experiences and process our feelings about this. And if we were going to tell stories, I just really felt like we needed to have the video behind that. And so um, both of those are going out. So um, as this news has kind of hit all of us in the last few days, um, I just was overwhelmed by all the different perspectives of what everybody was feeling, whether you are a service member actively serving, even if you're National Guard and Reserve, if you are a spouse um, of someone who went to Afghanistan, and um, if you're a caregiver of a veteran um, who was injured, both invisible wounds or physical wounds, um, during that time in Afghanistan, um, all of us are being impacted in, in various ways. And so I also know that there's been a lot of stuff coming out about um, veterans from Vietnam and whether or not this is our Vietnam. And um, I know a few days ago, there was um, the images of um, evacuating the embassy there in Kabul and it really brought up a lot of um, feelings in media about Saigon and was this our next Saigon? And and there's just a lot coming out, out at us. And I felt like it was just a really important week for us to process. So this series is to help you process. And so none of these conversations are scripted or outlined. Um, I really want you to be able to listen wherever you are to be able to help you process as you listen along um, these interviews. And so today I have... Um, one of the, the uh, probably the most amazing guests I could ever ask to come on the podcast. If you've read Sacred Spaces, you've heard my story, at least a part of my story um, in my relationship with my dad, who um, is a retired Air Force pilot. He also flew for Delta um, for the years that I grew up and um, he's just a very special person in my life. And um, part of my experience of traveling overseas, I had I had no idea that it was going to bring me even closer in my relationship with my dad. But um, there were various points in my experience overseas, especially as I got to experience our amazing Air Force, got to go into the cockpit of a C-17 while it was flying over the Persian Gulf, um, talking with those pilots and, and watching the Air Force crew um, throughout that trip just really um, gave me a whole different perspective of not only our Air Force, but especially my dad. So I am so excited and honored and pleased to have my dad, Wendell Lewis, with us on the podcast. Um, And of course, I've been wanting to interview him for a long time. I don't know if I got my genes for drama and camera work from him. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but um, I've wanted him to share his stories um, for a long time. And with everything happening this past week, um, he commented on one of my posts about um, how he was part of flying um, aircraft out of Saigon. And so I knew part of the series, we needed to have a veteran um, to share their story of Vietnam, but also Saigon. And I know there's a million stories that could come out of Saigon. Um, and this is just one of them. So dad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's always good to see you. Uh, well, I am um, thrilled to see you. It's been a long, especially couple years with COVID, and we haven't gotten to see each other as much um, as we would like to with me being in Texas and you being in Georgia. But it's always wonderful just to even video see you. I don't know why we don't FaceTime more often. Yeah. We should do yeah, that. We probably should. <laughs> you probably should. <laughs> so half the time you are like um, on your way to go um, do boat surveys, which has become your new passion since flying airplanes. I always wondered like, why are you still not working on airplanes? And I don't know, do you have an answer for why you're not flying anymore and why you've switched to boats? Well, I think it's it's kind of interesting because uh, I enjoyed it. They used to give me uh, airplanes to play with. Now I get boats to play with. So that's kind of the best of both worlds. I love it. And maybe maybe you just got, you know, you got to a point where I just needed to be, you needed to be grounded and uh, have, exactly. but I have to, I have to share a funny story before we get into your career flying. I have to tell everybody, um, you became really well known um, on the lake there in Georgia as the guy that if he can, if he can land a 777, he can definitely park a boat in the middle of a thunderstorm. And so for a while there, you were like the captain of the lake. I just have to say. Thank you. <laughs> well, okay. Why don't you, um, why don't you kind of share with everybody just kind of your career as far as why did you get into the Air Force to begin with? And like, what was your experience of where you served and what you did as part of the Air Force? Because you were active for a while and then you switched to reserves at some point. Right. Um, I graduated high school in 1966. And of course, that was when the Vietnam War was winding up. And uh, then uh, I went to college. And uh, so that deferred me from the draft uh, for the years I was in college. But then um, as I was getting towards the end of college, I always wanted to fly. So I was in uh, ROTC, Air Force ROTC. And uh, so I finished up college and I believe the year before I finished college was the first year of the lottery for the draft. Uh, but we all faced the prospect that uh, if you didn't go to college or as soon as you finished college, you were probably going to get drafted to go to Vietnam. So that was the backdrop of uh, everybody's uh, life at that time. So um, always wanted to fly. I got the opportunity to do that, but going through ROTC and the uh, Air Force and uh, in 1972, I finished my college uh, with a master's degree and went to Del Rio for pilot training. Can I just ask really quick before you get into the first years of flying? You know, we don't know what it was like to go through a draft. Like we don't know our, our entire force right now is a, not right now is a volunteer force. Like that was some sometimes it's hard for me to grasp that fully because, you know, many times I have come to you and said, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> like this lifestyle is so hard. And, and you've always encouraged us to of what it offers and what it gives you and the benefits that it provides and the stability, even though it doesn't feel stable right now, the stability that it can provide too. And so from a, from a family member's perspective, sometimes I think I lose sight of the fact that this is an all volunteer 
force. And it wasn't until I went overseas that I had a, I think it was a Colonel that actually said to me when I went up to him and I said, I, I, the spark that's in everyone's eyes, like everybody's excited to be here and do this. And like, they're like, they're, they're genuinely enjoying what they get to do. And I think that, I don't know why that surprised me a little bit, but it did. And I remember him saying, well, well, they volunteered to be here, you know? And I think for us as family members, they get orders to go. And so we forget that it's a volunteer force, but I don't know if we understand what it was like to face being drafted. And so can you describe like, what was that like back then to be, um, in a place where you could like not have a choice? Yes. Uh, the, the first few years, uh, after I graduated high school, during that time, uh, it was just a straight draft. The draft board would decide who went and who didn't go. And so, you know, it was all up in the air. They would give deferments for uh, going to college, which a lot of us did. But uh, otherwise, they would just go down the list and pick which ones uh, got drafted. And then uh, I don't remember the exact year, but it's probably uh, 70 or 72, somewhere in that range, where they went to the lottery. And they just uh, had 365 num numbers, uh, birth dates, and they pulled them out one at a time. And if you got pulled number one, uh, your birthday got pulled number one, you were the fir first to be drafted. And then they would just go down that list of birthdays that they'd pulled out of the uh, lottery like a bingo game. You know, you, you never knew for sure how far down the list they were going to go. Do you remember how you felt about that or maybe how you felt about other people that were maybe about to get selected or could get selected? Well, I was in college at the time and I knew that, uh, you know, the college would uh, protect me from the draft until I graduated. And I'd already decided that I wanted to go in the military and go in the Air Force and learn to fly. And uh, of course, that had been my passion for the, my whole life. And so, uh, I went in fully knowing that as soon as I graduated uh, pilot training, there's a possibility that I would uh, be sent to Vietnam. Uh, although my particular aircraft that I ended up flying, uh, we were based stateside and just occasionally flew over there. What was the climate in America during that time, during the draft? And, and with, I mean, it was, I mean, obviously it wasn't everybody feeling like they wanted to run away from war. I mean, in some cases, so many people like you were anxious to serve. So what was the climate like in America at the time? Uh, yeah, we still had a uh, lot of protests at the time. And uh, so that was the, like the 68 to 72 time period. Uh, they were protesting. I remember uh, on campus, we had ROTC uh drills and on thursdays we would wear a uniform to class and then go out and march around and my uh senior year which is like 71 um they decided that um it was too controversial for us to walk the campus in uniform and uh, so we eliminated our uh thursday marching and uh we didn't wear our uniforms to classes and we had an armory building there on campus and uh I remember one time they even uh, kind of protested around the army and were throwing snowballs and stuff like that. So you just didn't really uh, you discussed it with your friends, but, uh, you know, you, you didn't really uh, promote it or uh, show um, your military affiliation overtly uh, around campus. 
And this is a whole other topic, but I mean, as you were saying that, it reminds me of a lot of our first responders who have hidden their police cars, who right. don't park at home anymore, whose families um, don't even acknowledge that they're first responder families. And our military, our generation of military has not had to experience that since Vietnam. And so um, I can't imagine what that was like. So you, you graduate from college and you join the Air Force and you said that you were assigned um, an aircraft that was stateside. How did you feel about it being stateside and not something else? Well, we went to pilot training and based on your uh, graduating class, uh, your position in the class, uh, you got to pick from the block of airplanes that came down. And I was, you know, in the top portion of my class. And uh, I think there was like five or six fighter aircraft that come down, came down. And those would have been uh, probably sent to Vietnam. Uh, and then the block below that was everything from transports to uh, refueling aircraft to other aircraft. And um, when you go through pilot training, you're in the military, everybody's kind of gun ho you're, you want to be uh, the best pilot out there. And so everybody kind of wanted to fight our aircraft because they're hot rods and, you know, it was fun to fly. So uh, those went in the top of the class. I just missed one. I, so I ended up uh, with uh, the best plane I felt was a 141, which is a four engine cargo jet. And I uh, had the option of going to California or Charleston. And uh, yeah, Charleston was a cheaper place to live. So uh, we went there and uh, really enjoyed it because we got to fly a lot of different missions. We flew uh, west going to uh, Japan and Asia from there. And then we also flew east going uh, all over Europe and Africa and, uh, you know, like uh, Asia and stuff. Well, in Charleston, where is, is where I was born at the naval base there in uh, in Charleston, and so I grew up watching you fly these C one forty it's C one forty ones, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and and they were like the the giant planes. I don't think we had C seventeens back then, or did we? No, but there was C fives, which was bigger than the one forty one. But C one forty ones did the primary work of cargo and transport around the world. I think uh, growing up, I didn't have a full appreciation for what you really did and where you went and um, the the part that you played in what was going on. And so now I have so much of a better understanding of that. So, um, well, let's go back a little bit before me and go back to your time in Vietnam and, and share with everybody what your experience was. Um. Well, being a, a, the cargo plane, we uh, did primary supply trips to uh, Vietnam. Uh, usually we, most of the time, uh, all of my experiences prior to the uh, baby lift in Saigon, Japan, and then on to Thailand, where we would drop off supplies and uh, pick up uh, equi uh, equipment and other stuff to bring back. Um, different embassy runs, passenger runs for embassies and uh, flying cargo around uh, Europe. So it was a great job, got to see lots of different places. Uh, it was always kind of fun to watch the news back then because if there was some disaster somewhere, uh, the United States is always great about supplying uh, other people and helping other people. So that was usually, we were one of the first ones to fly into a disaster area, whether it was an earthquake or uh, 
famine or whatever. So always an interesting mission. And uh, the flights to um, Vietnam were mostly handled by the West Coast uh, planes out of uh, Norton and California and uh, McCord in uh, Washington State. So they flew uh, most of the missions to the uh, Vietnam, but we occasionally got uh, tax also to go up there. So everybody is saying, you know, this week about this is, you know, it was this going to be our Saigon and thankfully we were able to evacuate everybody from the embassy and, and get everybody out. But there was a lot of tension that was starting to really build on um, the Taliban um, really coming into Kabul and surrounding that area. And I know it made everybody really nervous and there was images circulating about um, Saigon. And so do you remember that happening specifically and what that was like, especially to fly in and out of Saigon and maybe tell everybody, you know, what you did during those last um, few days or weeks um, that that was going on. Um, yeah, we'd flown over there. We were at uh, Kadena, which is in Okinawa, and uh, we had to run to Korea and back and we're in Kadena. And uh, at the time, the um, North Vietnamese were surrounding Saigon and it was kind of falling. And uh, so they started uh, trying to do the evacuations. Uh, on April 4th, there was a C-5 that had the one of the first operation, uh, first flights for Operation Baby Lift. And uh, it was taking some of the babies from the orphanages and flying them out. Um, they took off and had a hydraulic problem, ended up crashing. And uh, that was on April 4th. Well, we were in Kadena and Two days later, uh, they said, well, we want you to go to Saigon. We're going to fly some more babies and civilians out. At the time, there was pictures of people climbing the gates and uh, stuff, but much like the pictures you saw in uh, Kabul. Can I just stop you and ask um, the plane that crashed? You know, did anybody survive that crash? Yeah, they had about uh, 300 people on board. I think 180 uh, survived. Um, it crashed. They took off and had a hydraulic problem, turned around and tried to come back to Saigon and crashed about, I don't know, five or 10 miles short of the airport. Um, so, so for you guys to respond right after that, you know, did you feel like things were heating up there? Well, uh, yeah, there was a lot of controversy. They didn't at that time, they didn't know why it had crashed. And so they did thought maybe with all the North Vietnamese around Saigon, you know, did, did they get a missile shot it down or something? So they didn't know why it shot down. So when they sent us in there, uh, not knowing what the area was like around there, they, uh, they sent us over to the armory and gave us sidearms and, uh, they gave our load, load masters, the guy that controls the cargo back in the plane, they gave them flare guns. And they said, well, we want you to go into Saigon. We're not sure about the hostilities around the airport. So go in over the airport at 10,000 feet, do as tight a spiral as you can, uh, staying as close to the airport as you can, down to the airport. And if your load master uh, sees a a flying telephone pole coming at you, they termed it, uh, shoot a flare gun across the engine exhaust and hopefully the missile will fo follow the flare instead of your engine because the flare burned hotter. So that was the atmosphere going in there. Okay. Uh, 
do you, I mean, families are listening to this and, and I, maybe service members think something differently, but like, when I hear that, I'm like, how did you feel about that? I don't know if, if you thought about that or if you just said like, all right, that's what I got to do. Like, I think, I think it's much like, uh, the military members today, you know, you're trained to do the job, uh, you're good at your job. And if you're called on to do it, uh, you know that you can do it. And so you just, uh, it's not, it's not a fear factor or anything really. It's just, Hey, I can do this because I've been trained to do this. And you always like an opportunity to show that you've learned your training, I guess, is a one way to put it. You know, and I've heard a lot of people, um, one of the most, one of the more painful things that I feel like has happened this week is the number of um, people who maybe don't understand the full context of what we're doing of or why we've been there, or even the hearts of our service members, the courage of our service members. And um, the, I think one of the hardest things for me has been to have people say things like, as if we don't care about the people um, in Afghanistan or as if we um, want to leave everybody behind in a terrible place. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about like your mission to go in there and, and to bring more people, um, more Vietnamese and orphans and, and people and rescue them out of that situation. And it wasn't until this morning, um, actually it was late last night, there was an image that came out. Of, all we saw yesterday were those um, C-17s that were trying to take off and all of the Afghan people that were clamoring, trying to get on board. And it's a devastating thing to watch, like just right. devastating. Right. And it's hit all of us yesterday hard, but it didn't come out until last night that on board that cargo plane was close to 800 Afghan people that that air force pilot and the crew just crammed a, like a record number of people into that plane and said, you know what, we're just going to forget the rules. We're going to like cram as many people as we can and get out as fast as we can. And that's who our service members are. Like, so when I, I see all of these comments about how could you just leave people there? How can we just leave people in that country? And I see service members like that who are doing everything they can to still do something good in the face of such difficult decisions. Um, that's the heart I think I, our service members have always had, you know? And so when I hear your story of like going into Saigon and we were still doing that then, right? And I, right. I the last thing I'll say before you respond to that is, you know, when I was on that C-17 flying overseas and I'm in that cockpit, cockpit talking to those pilots, one of the things that they said was, this is a no-fail mission, like this has to be a no fail mission, like whatever it takes, whatever we have to do to get everybody home or for this mission to not fail. That's what we've been charged to do. And so, um, I mean, what was your, I guess, what was your, what is your thoughts on that? Or what was your thoughts going in to, to bring these people out? Well, we're, we're excited about the mission because we, you know, you always like to feel like you're doing something good. And in the midst of something bad, you are uh, doing something good. So you want to you, you want to do it to your best of your ability. Uh, we landed. Uh, is the airport was very busy because you know the North Vietnamese were getting closer and closer, and the airport was very busy. Uh, 
we ended up taking about 150 people out. Uh, it was disappointing because we could have taken more, but they said they couldn't process them fast enough. So um, you always want to do more. And they were doing a lot of the other flights out of there were doing the same thing that you saw in those C-17 pictures. They were setting people on the floor and strapping them to the floor. Uh, you can go back and see pictures of babies and orphans in cardboard boxes just sitting on the floor. And uh, so you just do whatever's necessary to try and uh, accomplish the mission as much as possible and uh, get as many people out as possible. Well, and I, I know this is not a comfortable question for me to ask you, but I'm going to blame it on you because you brought it up. Um, <laughs> but um, you commented yesterday um, that you wish you could have gotten more. And and as you said that, I thought about the pilots yesterday, too. Um, so here you are so decades later, looking back and watching this in Afghanistan unfold, too, and um, and still feeling that very presently. You know, I was kind of in and out. Uh, I didn't have to stay there and live among the people and do that. So um, my experience doesn't really equate with what their experiences were. But I do feel that uh, it, our, our soldiers over there in Afghanistan, they went there to do the best job that they could. And I think they did, given the constraints that were put on them. We all feel like we could have done a better job if they would have just let us. <laughs> but many times we don't have control over that. And uh, sometimes that's difficult. And even looking back, they said they couldn't fill our plane because they couldn't process them fast enough. Well, at that point, you know, who cares? Throw them on the plane and we'll take them. But, uh, you know, you have to kind of work within the system sometimes, and that can be very frustrating and um, you know, it's hard to deal with sometimes. But that's kind of what we signed up for. Mm -hmm. for, for sure. Um, any, any, I know you kind of started this, but is there anything that you would say, let's say you were had a chance to speak to those Air Force pilots of that crew, what would you say? I'd tell them they did a fabulous job. I mean, I can't imagine uh, trying to take off with people on the runway and people hanging on your plane or even taxi that plane knowing that you might hurt somebody who's running along beside you. Uh, I can't imagine the, the stress that they felt. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they didn't want to hurt anybody. They were trying to save everybody. But at the same time, you know, they can say, hey, we brought 800 people out or whatever. Uh, so I think that's what you have to look at, not what you couldn't do, but what you could do with the resources that you were given. People are saying this is our Vietnam, and um, and I and I know that what they're meaning by that is that we've lost a war. This is what we're hearing, right? That we've lost a war. Um, that we're watching as all of that effort to hold back evil in that country is completely overtaken. And I know a lot of our service members are are feeling. Like it's their effort and the work has been erased or what was this? Um, they're getting questions like, was it worth it? Terrible questions, right? Was it worth it? Um, is it, um, how do you feel about it? Or, you know, just terrible questions. And so what was Vietnam like, you know, coming home? I, I know everybody had a different experience of Vietnam. <clears throat> Maybe yours was different from other people, but 
Um, do you how what do you think about that question? Because you lived Vietnam and we didn't. So is this let's ask that question, you know, is this our next Vietnam? And and what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, it's it's always difficult when you want to uh you want to win. Uh, as military members, uh, we're always taught to win. You know, there's no option to fail. So when you look back at something like Afghanistan, you know, personally, it may feel like a failure or Vietnam. It may feel like a failure. But I think you have to look at your portion of the mission and what happened. And did you do your part? And then you got to kind of hang your hat on that. that hey. They called me, I served, I did my part, I did the best I could, given what they would allow me to do. What do you, um, I mean, I hear that, you know, this is our Vietnam and my mind immediately goes to, well, that's dependent on how our country receives our military and their family members, given what's happened in Afghanistan. Um, and I know that our Vietnam veterans went through a very painful, um, I, not even a welcome home ceremony experience, right? It was just a very right. painful, empty experience. And so what what are you feeling as you're watching? Um, I mean, our world is so much different, right? Like we're getting video footage, live video footage almost, you know, of things that right. we couldn't have had in, in Vietnam. And so we're almost living it alongside live as it's happening. But um, what have been your thoughts and what's come up in you as you've watched the news and as you've watched this unfold? I think it was just a sadness. I didn't, uh, you know, it kind of brought back the memories. You know, the memories are always there, but it kind of brought it to the forefront, maybe. as a sadness that uh, we weren't able to uh, do more. We weren't able to, to win. And uh, for the uh, service members now, they have to, uh, I think, step back and say, hey, I, I did my job and uh, I did the best I could. And you can't say that we lost, you know, even though we did pull out, uh, we did what we thought was right. Uh, and each individual service member did what he could. Uh, the, the loss or losing the war it's not on the service members. It's on the leaders. Just by chance, have you ever heard any of the stories of the orphans or babies or those that were brought out of Saigon? And what uh, happened to them? You know, it's interesting. Uh, and it's not uh, specifically re related to my mission. or uh, But during that time, uh, we recently met uh, a lady and her family. Uh, they ended up buying my mother's-in-law's uh, house after she died, uh, her, her grandmother. Um, but uh, they, we sold the house, and it was sold to a Vietnamese couple, uh, an older Vietnamese couple. And they came to America in about that time frame, 75 to 76, when they were relocating a bunch of Vietnamese. And this lady uh, was seven years old at the time. She's like 50 now. Uh, and she was seven years old and her her and her family uh, escaped uh, Vietnam, Saigon in a boat. And they were adrift with a bunch of other people uh, in the uh, ocean out there for like seven days. And the uh, Navy finally picked them up and brought them to America. They ended up getting brought to America, relocated in the uh, 
I believe it's in the Washington uh, area and uh, Washington State. And then they moved to Los Angeles. But anyway, they came from Los Angeles and bought <laughs> my mother-in-law's house. And, uh, you know, it's funny, the connection, because she had been part of that evacuation and I'd participated in it somewhat. And uh, to, to hear her side of the story about trying to get out, and they were desperate and they were out there on the ocean for several days before they got picked up. And it's kind of come full circle to their, you know, very productive U.S. citizens now and, uh, you know, a great family. Oh, wow. So I have to tell everybody, I have not heard all of these stories, <laughs> or at least if I have, they've not been pieced together in a way that I fully understood its context. And so, um, so with that being said, like, what do you say, or what would you say when, when you hear us asking the question or you hear other people asking the question, was it worth it? Like, what do you say to that? I think it was worth it. Uh, you know, there's, uh, Thousands of uh, even Afghans, I'm sure their life is better because of the 20 years we spent there. And there's no telling that how that influence is going to carry on, even though the Taliban may be uh, overrunning them and controlling the country. Um, you know, I think that influence is still going to be there. And who knows, eventually, maybe the uh, men and women of Afghanistan will uh, rise up or uh, at least individually, I think their lives will be better. Yeah, I mean, I can't hear stories like the one you just told of of the woman coming to America and like having an entirely different life, right? Having an entirely different opportunity. And the, you know, the, the big thing that's been on my mind this whole week is um, the, I don't know if it's a Jewish proverb or if it's a saying or if it's a belief or, or something, but I heard somebody use it in the last um, week about something entirely different until this happened with Afghanistan. It's really been in my mind of um, when you save one man, you save all of mankind. And, um, you know, I, th I think it's really hard to um, look at what's happened in Vietnam or look at what's happened in Afghanistan and even this week and say, you know, we lost or it's over or there's no hope or whatever. And to to be able to step back and go, but we we'll, we may never know the story of one person that whose life was impacted or changed or that one woman who got to have at least 10 to 15 years of education that she normally wouldn't have had and what that does in her life or how she raises her children differently or the ones that did get to evacuate and how that will shape generations to come on what will be different or what can be different than if they would have stayed. And I just can't, I can't, I think, put a label on a whole country when there's individuals that were surely shaped by 20 years. Right. And uh, I think the servicemen have to remember in their families that although it may feel like it wasn't worth it, uh, you'll, you'll never know the ultimate outcome. You know, you have to look back and say, yeah, we did our job. We performed it the best we could. And, uh, you know, you can't dwell on the outcome. Sort of like raising kids, you know, you do the best job you can and you hope for the best outcome, but there's no guarantee. 
so true. I'm in the middle of that, by the way. <laughs> but I think, I think to close, Dad, um, I think I want to just give you an opportunity to, I mean, you're, you're such a great dad, um, for, for me, for us. Um, you've been an incredible father that has taken those, um, values of, of the military and what it instilled in you, um, and have modeled that, um, my whole life and have been such a model for me as a human being as well. And so, I think I just want to give you an opportunity to be a father um, to some of these um, men and women who have served um, that just need to hear from a father, a father who served, a father who um, know, knows what that's like to give everything and put your life on the line to do something that that it is right and good and just and to give of your talents that you're also passionate about and to um, to watch unrest happen in your own country. Um, you've, you've been through all of that and now you've had decades of raising a family and having grandchildren and you have incredible perspective. You have perspective that our service members don't have today. And so I think I just want to give you an opportunity to just be a father to them for just a minute. And what would you say to those service members, um, who are saying right now, um, are just replaying it all in their head and they're going so much work, so much effort, so much time away from my family that I gave to something that I thought it was for a reason. And now they're watching the Taliban take all of that land back and they're just questioning everything right now. They're questioning their sanity. They're questioning um, those um, lives that were lost that they tried to spare and wondering, how do I answer that question to their family members? What do I say? Right. So what would you say is just a dad to them? I don't think I can compare my sacrifices or experiences to anything that uh, those soldiers and airmen and sailors have done in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, their sacrifices kind uh, of pale in comparison to mine. I got to fly over there. I got to fly home and I would be at home every 10 days or so. So that's just a totally different experience. Uh, I can't imagine the sacrifice of deployments and additional deployments and over and over that how that takes a toll on the family. Um, it's just um, amazing. And uh, I know I've seen your family go through two deployments and, uh, you know, it's uh, extremely stressful. Uh, but at the same time, uh, even though back when I was serving, a lot of it was a draft or the threat of the draft coming. Uh, almost everybody that joined or in the Air Force in my section uh, was there because they wanted to be. They wanted to be there and they wanted to do the job. And in my case, I got to do a job that I loved and enjoyed. Uh, and it's always uh, fulfilling to get to show people or to get to show the world what your training has uh, taught you to do and how you're able to do it. Uh, the fact that our servicemen weren't allowed to utilize that training to its fullest potential and, you know, provide a better uh, outcome uh, is not the individual's fault. 
So each individual has to say, hey, I did what I was trained to do. I did what I was able to do. And uh, you have to just let it rest there and don't uh, dwell on it. Enjoy your family, enjoy your your life and, uh, you know, honor the sacrifices of all those individuals who were either injured or uh, gold star families that lost a spouse. They, they served their country and they did uh, a great job. So in closing, um, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna kill me for asking this, but, um, <laughs> you know, you're talking about, you know, that they can go home and they can um, invest in their family and be proud of what they've done and what they've accomplished. And, um, you, you survived a heart attack. Was it four years ago? Yeah, about, uh, five years ago now, five years ago, five years ago, you survived a heart attack, scared us all, (laughs) um, scared us all, you know, and there's something that happens, I think, in a person when they um, when they come that close and they get that second chance. And I'm thinking about, you know, a lot of our service members who've either had that experience of coming really close to something happening and and that new perspective on life. Um, but I am also thinking about the fact that after 20 years, um, we're going to have a very hard time slowing ourselves down and, and putting our energy in the right places. That's going to be, um, there's going to be a lot of adjusting that's about to happen where we've been so conditioned to be on the next mission, be on the next mission and to suddenly, um, take Afghanistan off of that, you know, rotation. It's going to take some people time to adjust and, and re, um, readjust where they're putting their energy. And so again, I promise this is the last question. Um, what did you, where did you come out of that experience with a new perspective on how did that shape? Cause I saw, I saw something shift in you. Um, and I don't know if I've ever asked you to put that into words, but I saw something shift in you after that second chance. And, um, and how would you encourage other people as an elder, um, as someone who's just lived such a full life and has plenty more to live? How would you encourage people on where their priorities are, where to put their energy at and where they can direct that new energy today? Um, not sure where to start, but yeah, it is kind of eye opening, uh, to, uh, you know, have a full blown heart attack and they paddle you twice to get you back. And, uh, you know, thanks to being in the right place at the right time and uh, lots of doctors and nurses, they were able to get me patched back up and put some stents in and, uh, all's pretty good now. Um, that does put a focus on your mortality though. So you have to realize that, uh, you aren't going to be here forever. You got to do the best you can while you're here. And, uh, in the end, it's usually about family and friends. So that's what you need to focus on. Uh, you know, your job's important, but in the end, uh, it's a family and friends. Well, you have um, been amazing and um, I love you so much. I'm so glad that I've um, got to 
experience that extra five years and plenty more. And I'm so glad that you're healthy. And I'm so glad <sighs> that we got through even a last year of COVID on top of that. Um, thank you for being vulnerable today and for sharing your story. Um, it's a very powerful story right now. And I think that that's, I don't know, there's something in me that says it's stories that are going to be what heals us and helps us move forward and helps us, um, take that next step, whatever it is, um, in your life, whoever's listening to this today. So dad, thank you for sharing your story. And, um, thank you for being such a great example to all of us here. I love you. Thank you. Love you. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org.